0: Hello everyone, welcome to Cyber Inspiration podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture podcast. Nadir here from Armis to tell about their story and his company. Nadir, can you please tell me about yourself and the company?
1: Sure thing. Thanks for having me here. I'm Nadir Israel. I'm the CTO and co-founder at a company called Armis. Armis basically deals with one of the holy grails of security in IT over the last decade or so, which is What if you actually knew what you have in your environment, what assets and what devices you have, no matter what they are, from the standard stuff like laptops and servers, all the way to industrial controllers and medical devices and cloud-based workflows and anything in between? The whole idea is that Armist can understand, discover, fingerprint and then overlay context on top of the different assets you have. And in essence, I like to compare this a little bit to, we're kind of like the Google Maps of the organization. We give you a good view of everything that you have, but also provide you the means of navigating through that, finding what you're looking for and understanding basically for each of these assets, what it means to the organization as well, and serve different teams in the process.
0: It's so interesting because many compliance frameworks also, one of the first things, and she's like, understand your assets, passive, active, different things. If you ask a person about insurance for the home, the first question is going to be, what the size of your house? If you yeah. want to ask a person to replace the windows, they're going to ask you, they'll know how many windows they have. But if you ask a company how many assets they have here, it depends. So it's mind-blowing that we are still in an era where we understand that. We cannot protect what we don't know, but we're still not sure about our assets. It is more complicated in the cloud because assets in the cloud can go up and down. But we're not going to dive into the technology right now. Everybody more than welcome to go to Armis, understand more. There's a lot of explanations. We're going to dive into what happened, I believe, in 2015, that you and Evgeny, I was hoping to talk to Nazar Evgeny, but I end up with you, <laughs> decided to start the company.
1: First of all, I definitely suggest you speak to my better half, Yevgeny. You'll get a much better interaction, but I'll do my best to channel him into this as well. First of all, I got to tell you, I was also surprised just like you are with the fact that companies don't know what they have. At the end of the day, they procured this. For the most part, they, ha- they bought all of these things. It's curious that they don't know what they have. But if I roll back time to 2015, when Yevgeny and I started really looking through, okay, what problem can we solve for organizations? We did something that at the time was very novel. These days everyone does it, and it also sounds pretty trivial. We asked people what they're missing. Back in 2015, that wasn't the norm. People would come up with these ideas and then go and validate them. But we did the other way around. Yevgeny was in a company called Adalom before Armus. Adalon was a cloud security company that got bought by Microsoft and he was the first employee basically at the company. And he knew a bunch of CISOs and CIOs. I knew a bunch of people from previous lives. And what we did was a couple of months of just talking to them and asking them, what are you missing? What do you feel is a growing gap in your environment? And almost every single one of them said exactly what we said in the beginning. I don't know what I have. I don't have the basic understanding of what my environment looks like. So how am I supposed to protect something or reduce risk or do anything I need to do if I don't know the basics of my environment and the assets within it? And that's really where we started. We did what any good startup does. We tried to narrow the scope or kind of limit this to something that makes sense And in the process, we made some assumptions. And our assumption early on was, you know, if the world was comprised solely from servers and laptops, this would have been a solved problem. This would have been something that agents could solve or other things. So the problem must be all the other stuff, all the IoT and OT and things like that. It really made us start down a path of how do we understand the environment without putting any agents or anything on machines within that environment. But... Eventually, over the years, it took us to where we are today, which is the singular platform and solution that can provide not just an understanding of all these assets, but also different tools and products on top of that.
0: When you guys were doing the research and you come up with, okay, I need my assets, I'm wondering, did you went right away and raise money? Did you went and started to create the product? Did you took some of the people you ask as you customers and design customers?
1: All good questions. And honestly, Armist changed a lot of my perceptions about how startups should start. My take, and me coming from an engineering background, this is also my comfort zone, was, yeah, let's start building stuff, right? We need to show that this can actually work, that we can actually do something. Why would an investor even put money on you before you have any kind of proof of concept of what you can do? But the reality is it doesn't exactly work that way Uh, and what i mean by that is you have to ask yourself in the beginning what is the biggest risk to the company's long-term success what are the biggest questions that are unanswered rarely is the question can i actually build this from a technology standpoint the underlying assumption is that you can or you'll figure it out along the way or you'll bring smart people smarter than you who will figure it out along the way A part of that is your background. I think that ultimately, when you're raising money, who the founders are, can they recruit the right talent, things like that really matters. But if you're being really honest with yourself, the biggest question that most startups in the beginning face is, will anyone pay for this? Not even, by the way, abstract concepts like product market fit, or is there a pain? Those are important questions. But the real question that you're trying to get as fast as possible to an answer is, will someone buy this? And that is a really difficult question to ask, but what it means is that investors in the beginning are taking uh, a very specific bet, which is 95% based on who the team is, and 5% or so based on the market opportunity or where you're going after. Specifically in cybersecurity, there's normally not really any other steps because the whole assumption is the market is growing, it's buying, and there's a lot of different reasons to assume that you would be able to be successful if you found something that makes sense. So to answer your question originally, we, even though my personal thought was, let's go build something, we actually went to investors, we pitched them a concept around that the fact that we can detect and understand all the different devices and assets within an environment. And we raised money based on that. We didn't even have at the time a slide deck. Honestly, our first investor Gili Rana, helped us even create the slide deck in the first place so we can show his other partners But we raised money based off of an idea, a concept, and who the team is. And we did, in fact, reach out and bring in a lot of those early folks that we spoke to as design partners or as folks that we can work with to actually realize this. You
0: almost describing as an investor as a service sounds I don't know if we're ever gonna have this, but sounds like a cool idea. Do you think this method can work right now? Or maybe even better question, if somebody and when somebody watching this interview, this episode, and they have an idea, what would you recommend to them to do right now to get money? Because it's definitely different.
1: So I think a lot of the basic mechanics are still the same the bar is higher in the sense that there are way more companies especially if you look at cybersecurity and the bar is higher as to what makes sense or doesn't but fundamentally it's the same mechanics it's still 90 to 95% the team and by the team it's not just their background it's how well they work together how does the chemistry come across are they open to criticism and self-learning how do they speak and how do they act and more most importantly especially if you think about the ceo in the group Does that person have actual experience in bringing something to market? All of these play a part in how would this team end up uh, building something that matters now? I do think that the bar is higher, and rightly so, on validating a concept. And the reason is market saturation. There are a lot of companies out there, and the business viability can no longer be just, I'm going to build a feature and sell my company for 100 to $200 million to someone. That was, in fact, what the case was back in 2015. I remember that when we started Armist, the biggest success of the time was Adalon that got sold for $300 million to Microsoft. That was the dream. These days, the bar is that much higher. Investors expect significant returns. They expect something that can be a billion dollar to $10 billion company. And to get there, you have to have way more validation of the concept. And I think that as a result, teams have adapted Usually when I see today pitch decks or teams coming to raise money, they are armed with dozens of CISOs or CIOs or people who have told them what they think about their idea. And they use that information to their advantage. Now, I think that what I would recommend to people is first and foremost, and I cannot stress this enough, team, team, team. People focus way too early on what the idea is, what the solution will be, things like that. But the founding team is so important. It is insanely important. Yevgeny, my co-founder, and I are closer than almost any other person out there. We talk to each other 10 times a day. We are constantly, to this day, in tons of interactions together, we run the company together. And I think that we've been through a lot of ups and downs and who the person you're with matters a lot. The second thing is really try to get as much market validation as you possibly can, not for the sake of investors, but for your own sake. Have conviction And this is gonna be something that's gonna work because I've proven it to myself and I've tried to answer that biggest question of all. Will someone buy what I'm building? Not can it be built, not as an actual pain, not as an actual attack vector. Will someone buy it? And how do I have that conviction?
0: Can I ask you a question? I don't think I ever ask anyone. How important is to learn how to fight with your Mm, co-founder? You know what I mean by fighting, to to resolve problems.
1: I'll give you lots of funny examples about that. First of all, I think in many ways, co-founders are a lot like a married couple or any kind of analogy you have to romantic partnerships, minus the obvious pieces of that. I think you are constantly faced with situations of back against the wall. It is an incredibly lonely role. You learn very early on, if you haven't known that already, that you can't share the things that you know with a lot of people, even people that are very close to you inside the company. It is a very grueling job that requires a lot of grit. And in many ways, I feel the problems in the company all trickle down and eventually get to you, especially in the beginning. Everybody can pass the buck along except for the founders. Now, Founders fight, obviously, a lot, just like any kind of relationship. In this case, it's also a relationship with a lot of stress applied to it, so maybe even more so than usual. And I've seen a lot of founder breakups happen in the beginning During the time that we were raising money, right towards the end of it, we signed a term sheet and that happened right at the end. We actually added in a third co-founder and it didn't end up working out. Within a year and a half or so, that guy was out. It didn't work out because of exactly the kind of interactions that happen early on and disagreements. On the other hand, Yevgeny, as an example, myself, we actually have incredibly energetic and loud discussions or fights. I remember once I was walking on the balcony of our first office in Palo Alto and I was on the phone with Evgeny for like an hour and I was pacing back and forth on that balcony, yelling into the phone. I don't even remember what the hell it was about, but I was yelling into the phone. And when the call was done, I remember walking into the office. It had like windows into the balcony. I walked into the office and all the people that were there, all the employees were looking at me like, okay, is the company over? What's going on? And I was like, no, can keep on working. We're good. Welcome (laughs) to Monday. (laughs) Yeah. I think if founders, and maybe that's the last piece that answers your question from a different angle. I think if you can have a relationship with your founder where both sides understand that they are both as committed that they are both as egoless about how they try to achieve things in the sense that the company is the only thing that matters and everybody is doing what they do because they feel it's the best thing for the company and not for themselves, then you can survive pretty much any fight like that because at the end of the day, you're fighting over something that you both share a passion about and you both want to succeed. The second ego starts coming in, the second the founders themselves start fighting over what they want to achieve and not what's best for the company, that's when things really go badly. And as long as you can avoid that, as long as the founders are very much aligned, and that requires work, that requires actual work over time, just like any other relationship, things can go amazingly well. Evgeny is one of the closest people in my life to me on a personal and professional level. He also happens to be the person that I probably yell at the most, and I get yelled at the most, but we love each other, and here we are.
0: So let's transition about talking more about people. You have an idea, you have money right now, time to hire people. And I believe it's a very important part, especially now when we understand that everybody probably going to be working remotely in majority of the cases. How do you build culture? How do you hire people? Here's the interesting part. In one way, we want to hire people like us. Why? Because we enjoy people like us. But in the different way, if you are very detail-oriented and somebody else is not, he may be you off, but he will bring or she will bring something else to the table. What and how you guys decided on a culture? Again, you cannot not decide on a culture, you can build a culture and type the people to hire.
1: Great question. Great questions. I'll separate that for a second into a, a few different phases in the company's life cycle, I think in the beginning, you have less control over the culture than you think. What I mean by that is that the company will naturally evolve and have the same DNA or something very similar to the founders. It happens for a lot of different reasons, but it's a combination normally of the fact that we do end up bringing people that we value. And those are people that usually mimic certain parts of our own DNA, our own values, our own culture. And the other reason is that People, at the end of the day, join startups in the beginning to be close to the action, to be close to the founders, to learn on their own, to adapt. And as a result of that, they will mimic or at least try to appease whoever it is that's running the company. So the reality is you're going to end up with a company, like it or not, that is pretty similar to yourself, your values, and your DNA. And in a way, it's also a mirror because maybe aspirationally, You really want to be a person who lets people experiment and grow, as an example. But in reality, if you're a control freak and you can't let anything go wrong, the company will actually model itself after that. Other people will be like that as well. Now, the one thing you can affect, for sure, and one of the most important things that will end up impacting the company for years to come, who is that initial team that you bring in? Because while you bring them, they will bring everyone else. All the other people who will come later on will think about who's already there. These people, if you do it right, will actually become legends in the company over the years. They will become people that other people look up to. They might advance within the company and become leaders. They might not and still just remain there. And they might even not be there a few years later, but their memory will still be there. Their code will still be there. So the people you bring on in the beginning are incredibly important. And having a good balanced mix of who those people need to be will really determine a lot of what comes next. Now, naturally, we bring people that we know, we trust. You can't really allow yourselves too many risks in the beginning because you don't have any time to waste. But one tip that I've learned is two tips, actually, that I've learned are these. Number one, definitely hire friends. I think that there is a lot that can happen when you hire friends, you don't need to avoid it. But my rule of thumb is hire friends that you have worked with before you've become friends or otherwise your professional relationship supersedes your personal relationship. The reason is that we tend to like people. And when we like people, we paint them in a better light than they are and also If your relationship started off as personal, it doesn't have that basis of being able to criticize each other in a constructive way. If you think about most personal relationships, they start much nicer. But if it was professional first, you already have that basis of being able to tell each other what to do or where you're wrong. And then on top of that, friendship was built out of mutual respect. The second tip is that if you hear something bad, some bad feedback about someone before hiring them... There are always exceptions, but usually there aren't. Usually it's not the exception, it's the rule. The good people are good everywhere. The good people have good feedback everywhere. If someone has red flags, you might be that exception of that person best and you can make them work or whatever, but usually that's not the case. Usually it just doesn't work. These rules were hard-earned lessons, I think, over the years, but... Definitely things that I think helped guide the company to where it is.
0: Let's dive a bit towards the product. I have this idea of chicken on the egg. You come to a customer, tell me, we, we like it, but we need this feature. What you, and I know stuff will definitely change because you guys have been around for a long time. What do you guys do? You tell, yes, we have the feature and go we'll create it quickly. Or we'll tell the customers, no, Mr. Customer, we don't have it, but if you buy it, we'll create it later on. Sorry, Mr. Customer, it's not something we want to do. Thank you very much.
1: So let's think for a second about the dynamic you have as a nobody startup with two and a half people out of Israel, as an example, trying to sell to some big conglomerate in the US. What they're buying at that point is trust. They're buying you. They're buying their relationship. They're not buying the product just yet. They are and they aren't. They understand usually that it's a young startup. Things might not work. You might need to do a bunch of work for them. They're just as much buying that relationship and trust that they'll be able to throw stuff at you and you'll be able to create it as anything else. And that kind of trust requires, by the way, in my opinion, lots of face-to-face interaction and building out that relationship so you can look that person in the eye and they can trust you and you can trust them. But back to your question around features, I think in the beginning, there is an expectation and rightly so that you built things while moving, not based on promises. You don't have the credibility or the brand yet to be able to really promise anything and have any kind of trust from the client to deliver. So if there's a feature that's missing, our usual thing would be to say, yes, we have it, or give me until tomorrow, or anything else that is impressive, anything else that can show both the abilities as well as our commitment to the customer and being able to do that for them. First of all, they don't get that for most of their vendors. And secondly, this is what we're good at. I think Israelis, this is what we're good at. We're not good at the long-term scale finishes of things. Like a lot of times it's a very engineering-y type product and not a very finessed kind of finishes of product. But we are really good at doing this type of rapid delivery that is highly impressive. It shows the grid and the abilities of the team. And it's something that needs to be leveraged in the beginning quite significantly. Now, you might get complaints from the dev team on this or from anyone else who's working on this. At the end of the day, you suddenly promise something and they need to deliver it within 24 hours or 48 hours or something like that. But the way to explain this to the team there is quite simple, in my opinion, and we've used this quite significantly. First of all, Being transparent with the team is incredibly important. And going back to your question about culture, it creates a very solid culture of we're together through thick and thin. But the second thing it does is we can transparently tell them, look, we can build the stuff that we think our customers want. We don't know. You might be completely wasting time and cycles on building this excellent feature that no one cares about at all. But by doing this kind of methodology, we are spending the cycles, our most precious cycles, our dev cycles, on only the stuff that matters, only the stuff someone is willing to pay money for. It will guide us down the path of product market fit that much faster. And it requires us to work a little bit in these kind of fast pulses. But anyone who joins a startup early on, that's what they joined for. They didn't join for the slow and steady. They joined for the action. They joined for the adrenaline. They joined to make things happen and appear in record times. So I think... It's definitely the former of what you said and not the latter. It's definitely about delivery now, showing what you can do, and then building on top of that trust, everything that comes after.
0: Involving and building stuff has a lot of different tasks and also tasks to you. So I want to dive into the dynamic about task management. How do you decide what to do? How do you manipulate between different people? And right now... Imagine you guys a big company. It's probably impossible for you even to know everyone in the company anymore.
1: So in the beginning, task management is actually in some ways pretty straightforward. I think that it relies on the fact that on the one hand, the founders are incredibly involved in everything outward facing. So I think that in many, especially cybersecurity startups, the CEO and CTO are almost like the mold, the model for your average sales rep and SE. And going into meetings, doing things together, essentially mimics that form of dynamic with the client. Now, the SE part here is really important. The CTO part is actually really important because that's the conduit and the channel between being able to, on the one hand, sell technically whatever you can to the customer and be cognizant of what we talked about before. What can I promise and get away with? On the other hand, though, Always feed it back into the R&D and product team and make sure that they're focusing on the things that matter the most. Now, there's not a whole lot of methodology and process in the beginning. It's all about just coming together multiple times a day and prioritizing and seeing status and doing everything you possibly can to move forward. It has to be done in a rapid way like that because you also have to know, I'm speaking as myself here as a CTO, I have to know what's being delayed, what is being delivered on time, what isn't. And then again, manage the risk of that with the customers. I can't tell you how many times we've had all kinds of weird excuses like my flight was late, Mr. Customer, and I can't make our time. I have to do it tomorrow. How do we do the call tomorrow? And the only reason for that is because we need one extra day in order to deliver something because something slipped. Or going to bed, I I was on the West Coast most of that time, going to bed at 12 a.m., let's say my time, which is 10 a.m. Israel time, after we've related to the R&D, what needs to happen during that night. Going to bed, knowing that I have a call at 8 a.m. Pacific, which I have no idea what I'm walking into. I'm hoping that during my sleep, they've managed to build whatever it is they need to build so we can show that to the customer. But task management isn't really a process or any kind of methodology. It's just you do what you must, you do what you can, and you manage that chaos however you can. Now, the more you grow, the more you have to start introducing some sort of process, because the more pieces of the machine are moving around on their own. And despite the fact that I used to think that things like mission and values and things like that are these ridiculous corporate constructs that don't really matter, and they're just words on a paper... I've come to realize as the company grows that they are absolutely imperative because there are so many decisions that are happening randomly across the company in any given day that you are not a part of, that you have to give people the means, the orientation to make the right decisions or try to progress things in the right way along the way. I studied physics, so a lot of my examples are usually physics, but I like to think of it as in that chaotic mess of all of these different random decisions mission and values are almost like placing a magnetic field on everything and trying to orient just a little bit all these different micro decisions in the direction you want the company to go and empower everyone to just work through everything. So it's a very different beast. It's a very different idea early on and later on, but you need to maximize on the advantages you have as a small team that you can just bring everyone into a room or a virtual room and just tell them what needs to happen right now very transparently and just move from there. I'm going to move a bit to a
0: sales world. And I think it's a very interesting because if there is no sales, there is no company. Now, you mentioned that you came from a technical background a bit. Does it mean that as a founder at sales, you needed to learn how to become more salesy person? Can you walk us through the process and how <laughs> hard it was to get out of your comfort zone and start selling?
1: Ah, that is an interesting one because... I did not come from this background at all, and I didn't know that I even had that in me. To your point, I ran R&D teams before, and I didn't know the first thing about how to interact with a customer. Ideally, what I would say is you should acquire a little bit of experience like that pre-becoming a founder. There's plenty of ways to do this, but the best way is to join in fairly early on, not immediately early on necessarily, but fairly early on to another startup where you know the founders and take on a role that is around that whole SE or deputy CTO or something along those lines and building out a little bit or experimenting with how that looks like without taking on all the risk yourself. In my case, I just found out that I have a bit of a knack for being able to have that kind of conversation with the customer and generate trust. In a way, good engineers can actually do that because as an SE and as someone who interacts with the customer like that, you have to be this calm, trustworthy person in the room. They already don't trust the sales guy. They already don't trust in some ways the CEO because they know they're selling them. You have to be this very chill persona and you play a role within this dynamic of you're the the voice of truth. You're the one who doesn't completely over-exaggerate everything. You're the one who gives it as it is. Now, because everybody is role-playing a little bit, you can stretch that a little bit. If you're doing this really well, I'm not saying you need to be manipulative or anything like that, but if you're playing this really well, you can act that role, but stretch a little bit where the truth exactly is. And if you do it the right way, You can achieve both. But honestly, I would say that the company, myself, we took a big bet on me. And while I know that we could have filled that role maybe with someone else or figure out something else, I think the best thing to do is probably try and acquire that kind of experience if you can beforehand.
0: Let's take it deeper. Yeah. You are a founder. You're starting to sell your product. Everything is okay, but the company is growing. And now you need to trust somebody else to sell your baby, to tell the story. How this happened?
1: Initially, you, at least in my case, have this assumption that someone who's been selling for years knows what they're doing. That's actually, in my experience, not the case. You as the founder have a lot of things going for you. People want to talk to you more than they do a sales guy or an SE. The product, the team, inside and out, you can do things on the fly that someone else won't be able to, or won't be able to come up with like that, all of the advantages that someone else has, you actually have more. And what that means is you don't need to hand over the keys or think that someone else can do it better than you can. Now, having said that, you have to start training or doing something to give this in the hands of other people. And our experience has been, and I think that other companies have mimicked this as well, is that in the beginning, the SEs don't need to be under sales necessarily. They can actually be under the CTO. In our case, we built this organizational structure where the sales reps and account managers are under the VP of sales and the SEs were under myself as a CTO. Now, that actually lets you control and guide that organization a little bit and get it to a different or make, I think, a little bit the SEs in the image of what you think that should be. Now, in our case, it didn't start like that. We actually started with a typical model of sales organization, sales reps, SEs, and we couldn't get it to work. We just didn't understand what we were doing wrong. And I ended up hiring someone on my risk, like my decision to take on someone I knew to help me out because I had to be on every call. I had to help with every kind of interaction, and. That wasn't a typical SE. It was another person I was in the army with. He reminded me a lot of myself. And that was the point. I wanted someone who I could see doing my job in this kind of scenario. And that person, I remember two weeks after he joined, our VP of sales calls me up and says, I don't understand how that person that I was against you hiring, who doesn't know anything about sales, can do a better job within two weeks than all of the SEs that I've brought on. I'm like, okay, let's drill into that. Like, why is that? But I think it's because at the end of the day, in the beginning, it's more about being able to understand firmly what you have to work with and work with that and adapt and adjust it into what you need it to be than selling according to a playbook, which is what most sales NSEs basically are trained to do or can build them out.
0: If you go back to 2015, what would you do differently?
1: One thing I would do different is we spiraled around quite a bit on different assumptions at the beginning. I mentioned the assumption about thinking that the problem is OT and IoT. There was another assumption that we made around that the world is moving to becoming wireless and that wireless protocols and things like that are the most important thing to track. Now, nothing wrong with assumptions and a lot of assumptions end up being right or wrong along the way, but it took us a full year and a half to figure out that wireless isn't the biggest thing here or the main focus that we should be on. And it honestly took a board meeting, which is very, I remember it very vividly in my mind, a board meeting where Gilly, our our main investor, and I were in this argument for about 10 minutes where he was asking me, what are customers buying? And I was answering essentially what we were selling. And I didn't realize, as trivial as it sounds, I didn't realize that those two things can be different from one another. The fact that I sold a customer on something does not mean that's what the customer thinks they bought. And if you stop for a second and ask yourself that question, it's a question that ever since then, I ask myself all the time. What are customers buying? What do they think they bought? And in our case, we thought we were selling wireless security. What the customer thought they were buying was device security or asset security, but they just happened to have wireless environments. And that little change, I think, changed the destiny of the company. It changed it completely, even though the technology at the time didn't change that much. It was more the orientation, the understanding, the product. And that kind of exercise should happen way more rapidly. It shouldn't have taken us a year and a half to get there. I think that there's a few more of these along the way, but we're smarter today than we were then. I feel like if I could go back, I would really focus on a lot of the things I mentioned in the beginning. What are people buying? what is the stuff that we need to build so people would pay dollars for and not just follow a template or a script on the way to success.
0: Thank you. As you mentioned, as part of being a founder, there's a lot of different problems, issues, stuff you need to fix. What Nadir does to get back to himself after a bad day or something bad happened? Is it a meditation, Uh walking? Like, What is your secret sauce for yourself to get back?
1: Yeah, I think, first of all, walking working out, watching stupid things on Netflix are all ways to just regain a little bit of sanity. I mean, there was a time in the past where I also gamed more, like to play games more as again, a way of just removing yourself from the here and now and immerse yourself in something else. I think to me, usually the, the best and worst moments that I've had in Armis have to do with people. They have to do with people that have succeeded, people that we've either had to let go or something basically happened along the way. And those are harder to shake. Those are things that kind of stay with you a little bit. But I try my best, at least at night, at least after everything is done, to find a space to kind of chill out a little bit with something so that you can carry on from there. Yes.
0: Thank you. I have a feeling we can talk for another half an hour or an hour, because there are a lot of interesting topics. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure to talk to you and learn so much about the company and you.
1: I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me.
0: Everybody's listening. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.